Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say on this Payrolls Friday, we are joined by Marty Feldstein. He is Harvard University economics professor and the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Reagan. Marty, always great to have you with us on the program. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Happy to be here. Looking forward to talking to you about payrolls in just a moment. want to begin with China and the prospect of a deal. We now have some decent transparency of what the United States would like from the Chinese. Let's talk about how realistic it is that this administration will get those things. Unfortunately, it's the wrong thing to be focusing on. Uh, It's something that the public can understand. It's something that President Trump can sell as our goal, $200 billion. It's a big number. It would cut our bilateral trade deficit in half, and it really doesn't matter. What really is important is that the Chinese have been taking technology from American firms by requiring them to have joint ventures with Chinese firms if they want to do business in China. That's against WTO rules, and that is what we should be focusing on when we negotiate with the Chinese. So the administration is also focusing on that, as you know, Professor. They are demanding that the Chinese change this removal of restrictions on foreign ownership of companies, also the technology transfer as well. Is your message that they're asking for too much? They should be focusing on just that and not the overall trade balance? It would be much better if they focused on that. I mean, that got brought into the discussion late in the game. Um, The original thing was about cutting the bilateral trade imbalance. And if the Chinese managed to do that and we say, great, you've given us what we wanted, will have missed the opportunity to deal with the serious problem, which is the technology transfer. Let's talk about the time horizon for all of this. There usually needs to be a credible threat at the other end of any negotiation. If we don't negotiate a better deal, this is what happens. And on the table at the moment is a proposal for a set of tariffs and considerations for another proposal of a set of tariffs against the Chinese. The Chinese themselves, Professor, have their own proposals on how they would respond. So we've got everything set up that way. Do you have any idea, any clarity at the moment on what the time horizon is to negotiate this deal with the prospect of tariffs at the other end of it? Well, I think tariffs are important. I think restrictions on what the Chinese can do in the United States, their ability to invest here, to buy U.S. companies, all of those things that the Chinese would like to be able to do, we can say you can only do those things if you get in compliance with WTO rules that you had accepted, and that means allowing American companies to invest, to sell in China without having to... Uh, have a a Chinese partner. Professor, I have been stunned by the U.S.-centric coverage of these meetings and, frankly, of this debate. Are we not talking about the Chinese view on this because we don't know what the Chinese view is? Is there something unique to dealing with a totalitarian regime, a dominant communist party there, where we do a different dialogue just because they're Chinese? Well, the Chinese have said about this technology transfer that they're not doing anything illegal. They're not violating WTO rules. They're not requiring American firms to transfer technology. 
If American firms, on the other hand, want to do business in China, well, that's the price they have to pay. That is exactly uh, contrary yeah, to WTO rules. But we have a president who doesn't want to respect a multilateral WTO structure. But this is a clear rule that the Chinese are violating okay. that's hurting us. And we ought to use the mm -hmm. fact that they had signed on to that behavior. In the time that we have with you, uh, Professor Feldstein, we need to go back to another time and place. I guess Everett Dirksen would be a good place to start, where it was a billionaire, a billionaire. Martin Feldstein's reaction to a guns and butter certitude. Everyone's happy with a trillion dollar deficit. Well, I'm not happy. Well, <laughs> expand on that, please. So we used to have, not too long ago, 10 years ago, we had a national debt, which was a less than 50% of our GDP, around 40%. Mm -hmm. Now it's about double that. And it's heading to 100%. The vector's going in the wrong direction. It sure is. And and if we are actually heading by the official statistics, Congressional Budget Office statistics, to 100% <clears throat> by the end of the decade, the reality will be worse than that. In the distinction here, and folks, this is really important. I'm going to let Professor Feldstein show his ability. We <laughs> model it against a Japanese experience where their culture and ethos is totally different than this complex economy of the United States. We can't compare and contrast plus 150% deficits with Japan, can we? Not at all. We cannot do that because the Japanese don't... Uh, the Japanese are able to finance their deficits internally. The Japanese <clears throat> households are buying that debt. Um, we sell, we trade in the global economy. And John, this naivete, which the professor uh, describes beautifully, I think is much the same as with the United Kingdom. Americans want to compare and contrast with the United Kingdom, and they're just not the same economies. So my question, Professor, should we really worry about this $1 trillion deficit? It's 5% of GDP. You're saying the debt dynamics are different to Japan. Our listeners would agree with you. That's in the data. It's in the facts. But still, this is the most liquid bond market on the planet, some of the most in-demand debt on the planet. Why would the treasury market suddenly dry up in terms of demand? Well, they're not going to dry up, but the interest rates are going to be higher. So if at the end of 10 years we're looking at 100 to 125% debt to GDP, that's going to mean that interest on the government debt is the largest thing the government is spending money on. And it's going to mean that there's going to be pressure for long-term interest rates to rise, real long-term interest rates to rise. And that is going to be very unhealthy for equity prices. Professor, we could probably have a long conversation about how effective markets are as a discounted mechanism. But all this information is out there and treasuries yield less than 3% on a US 10-year. It's hardly dramatic, is it? It's amazing that it is so low, but it is moving up. And I think it will continue to move up. If you look back yeah. over the last six months or so, it's moved up both in real terms and in nominal terms. Professor, thank you so much. Martin Feldstein joining us with Harvard University and, of course, the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Back to Jobs Day, and we do that always with Alan Kruger of Princeton uh, University. 
uh, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Alan, I know John wants to get more granular about the report. Let me go more uh, at a higher elevation, and that is the effect of technology on this labor economy. We don't have a clue, do we? Well, I think the effect of technology has been profound. If you look over the past several decades, far more important for what's happened in manufacturing than international trade. Um, the fact that we've become much more productive in manufacturing. But our listeners and, feel that technology is their enemy when it comes to jobs and wage growth, right? Well, technology can be very disruptive. In some industries, it's been extremely disruptive, like music. Finally, I think in the music industry, they're getting their arms around Agreed. Uh, how to take advantage of the Don't technology. Let, not Spotify. They got crushed this week, but that's a separate story. Uh, but at least Spotify is helping to generate more revenue for, for the whole industry. Um, so I think technology obviously can be disruptive. The question is, how can we make transition to make technology work best for the most people in society? How can we do that? Well, I think it starts with education, and our education system hasn't kept up. And the irony is technology gives us tremendous opportunity in education uh, to use technology to help improve teaching. And we haven't taken full advantage of technology and education yet, and our workforce is, is falling behind in terms of skills compared to the rest of the world. I want to take the opportunity to, to shift towards the Wall Street side of the conversation, Alan, if you don't mind. Um, the, the story so far this year has been really, really mixed, quite radically different payrolls reports through 2018 so far. January, we had the wage growth surprise. February, we had just this monster payrolls report with 326,000 jobs added. Then March was completely the opposite at 103. Is it getting difficult to get a read on what's happening in the jobs market and the labor market in the United States right now? Well, the numbers are noisy. They've always been noisy. And from just three or four months, it's hard to say that the sampling variability or non-sampling variability has increased. But John, if you, if you look at some of the other indicators, like unemployment insurance claims or the NABE survey or the manufacturing surveys, the underlying job growth, underlying labor market looks like it's solid, continuing to improve. And it looks like we may end up with a three-handle on unemployment. Unemployment, though, as you point out, Alan, and I think many people might have missed, it's been really, really stable at 4.1% for quite a while, and many people are waiting for it to drop even lower. What's going on there? You know, it's been a remarkable run of 4.1%, six months in a row. The uh, sampling error on the unemployment rate is uh, substantial. It takes about a two-tenths of a percentage point movement in the unemployment rate for the Bureau of Labor Statistics <laughs> to say that it was a meaningful change. So the fact that it's just been sitting at 4.1 has been a remarkable coincidence. Martin Feldstein today, who I would suggest has a different economic thesis than you, uh, suggested that the Fed really needs to focus on the employed part of the economy and that we are fully employed. You see that in claims clearly. How do we address the huge body of America that's struggling? I hear it. I get it. John and I get it every day in the emails from people. Is there a social requirement for the Fed and for fiscal authorities to address that? Uh, I think it's the responsibility of government economic policymakers to address it, and the Fed is part of that network. Now, the Fed's tools are more limited than what Congress can do. Congress has done some things to help that segment of the workforce. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has helped to bring millions more people uh, uh, under health insurance coverage, which has been been beneficial for low-income workers. Um, 
I think it's important that we build on that progress. Unfortunately, we're moving in the opposite direction with many decisions of the current administration. But just as one narrow example, and we've spoken to Senator Portman and others of Ohio about opioid. Most most people in Washington, I think, can't spell opioid. I mean, they're just running from it, from what, you know, not Republican, Democrat, but we're basically spinning our wheels on what is, what is a medical, social, and economic issue. How do we affect a policy on opioid that is bipartisan and begins to address it. You know, I think this shows enormous failure of the current administration. They appointed uh, Chris Christie to chair a commission, which mostly made sensible recommendations. The administration hasn't followed through. So um, I I think that there's been tremendous neglect when it comes to the opioid crisis. I I can tell you, Tom, I've done some research, as you know, on how the opioid crisis (laughs) intersected with the decline in labor force participation. And I've never received such heartfelt responses from the well, public. But the, folks, this is important. Alan Kruger shows up and he's got a bunch of fancy titles and he pontificates about what we're going to see at 830. What you need to know is it uh, was Card and Kruger and a guy named Deaton have actually done, John, the grunt work yeah. on what people are really doing with their lives. It's called like micro research and you, somebody's got to go out and do it, including the laureate Angus Deaton. We've talked about your research before, but for our listeners that haven't heard it, um, just give us a synopsis, Professor, of what you have learned about the opioid crisis and what it really means for the labor market at the moment. Well, almost half of the prime age men who are out of the labor force are taking pain medication regularly. Half. And that's a remarkable figure that comes from Bureau of Labor Statistics surveys. We don't know what type of pain medication, so one of the things I did was a follow-up survey, and I asked. And two-thirds of those individuals are taking prescription medication. And I have to believe there's a lot of underreporting as well. Then I looked across the country and I found that areas where prescription opioid medication uh, increased the most is the greatest. We've seen the biggest decline in labor force participation. And my estimates suggest that around a third of the decline in labor force participation over the last 15 years can be accounted for by the spread of opioid medication. What's your remedy? Well, uh, first of all, I think we need uh, to uh, make sure the medical profession doesn't overprescribe. And I think a lot of the responsibility falls on doctors who and pharmaceutical companies who push the medication unnecessarily, probably for good intentions, but the unintended consequences have been tremendous. Um, so I think that... Uh, is is uh, should be the first line of defense. Then we have a large number of people who are addicted to the medication. And we need better treatment facilities for them. Um, we need to treat it like a mental health problem, uh, not like uh, not like a crime. Uh, and we, I think we vastly need to increase our mental health services for these individuals. Uh, to the jobs day uh, uh, today, are we fully employed? I think we're pretty close to the textbook definition of full employment. Now, full employment doesn't mean that you can't continue to see job growth. Uh, Full employment doesn't mean that um, the expansion has come to an end. But by the textbook definition of is the unemployment rate so low that most people can find a job who are searching in a a reasonable period of time, that the remaining unemployment is what we call frictional. Uh, In the aggregate, that's probably true. For some populations, however, I think unemployment still remains much too high. Amazing. I, I, it's an amazing, John, this conversation off of Bloomberg surveillance seven, eight, nine years ago. Just yeah. extraordinary. 
and some phenomenal research <clears throat> as well from the professor. And uh, if you want to find it, where can we find it, professor, for our listeners that would like to have a read? Well, I have much of it posted on my webpage at www.kruger.princeton.edu. There we go. Did There's he the plug. set you up to do There's that? There's the plug. That's no, I just amazing. thought, you know, I, I just thought for our listeners that might want to read the whole thing, um, the professor could plug his website. Are, are they going to see this also at the webpage of The Real Yield with John Farrell? They might hear a little bit about it at 1 p.m. Eastern time on Bloomberg TV. Oh, my <laughs> words. Some links. <laughs> You're welcome to link. Anything you'd like to plug? Tom Keane? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> professor Alan Kruger, Princeton University professor, and of course the uh, former chairman of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Let's continue that dialogue with Julia uh, Coronado with her work and a wonderful call on a more subdued potential GDP as well. There's that, that unemployment rate, Dr. Coronado, that is the efficient unemployment rate. Neil Dutta over at Renaissance Macro drives forward the analysis and says, look, under 4% unemployment rate. Wage growth is basically nowhere. Is the new Nehru, like the new potential GDP, a small number? I think it's hard not to conclude that Nehru is lower given the wage performance. And yes, we had a strong ECI, but it's strong relative to where it's been, not in historical terms, right? It's still below 3%. And so I think it's hard to look at this. Yes, the labor market is strong, but it's just not generating a lot of wage or inflationary pressures. No need for the Fed to panic. In fact, right. um, the Fed itself looked at, um, because of a better educated population and an older population, Nehru is probably lower. Those factors lower the uh, equilibrium unemployment well, rate. So good news, but no panic for the Fed. Well, okay, so the potential GDP number, like the efficient GDP number, is politically unacceptable to politicians because they want more spirit, they want more oomph and all that. Is there a politically acceptable unemployment rate? I mean, is 3.9% unemployment an Eisenhower-like statistic? Is that uh -huh. good for Donald Trump? Is that good for Nancy Pelosi? Look, it's good for everybody, right? I mean, it is very good news that the labor market is strong. It's very good news that it's now, you know, uh, a seller's market, if you will, that, that people finally do have good job prospects, they're changing jobs, the quits rate is, is, has recovered. So there's a lot of indicators saying it's a healthy, healthy job market. Um, politically, you know, anybody can grab that and run with it. Um, but I think for the economy, it's great news. For the Fed, it's great news. I think the fact that the unemployment rate dropped does keep them marching higher on interest rates, but again, sort of in the gradual pace that they've got planned out. So um, I think it is kind of a sweet, uh, sweet spot right now. You know, we're, it's a sweet spot right now. And the 3.9 number is, is I'm sorry, Julie, to me, it's historically extraordinary on a yearly basis. Yes. It's back to 1969. And we'll get the monthly granularity. Our team, our uh, Brendan Murray and our team in Washington will do that. But when you see, Dr. Coronado, a 3.9 statistic, particularly with your Texas background, that's, <laughs> that's a stunning statement. Shouldn't everybody stand up and celebrate today? 
Yes, absolutely. We should stand up and celebrate. I mean, I think, again, yes, it's great, great news that finally, after a very frustratingly halting recovery, we're kind of humming along. Um, And as Jim Glassman said, the fact that hiring has slowed a bit, it's still a a healthy pace. There's nothing there that's worrisome. Um, So this is definitely a good news report. I mean, within this, Julia, and I guess we can backtrack to wage growth as well. Again, Neil Dutta with his smart two-sentence note here. The the idea of wage growth where it is, that's not acceptable. I mean, I'm great. John Tucker and I are biased because we live in three zip codes of of upstate. You know, know, if we were making triple what you were making, uh, John, we still wouldn't be enough wage growth. But but with that said, Julia, 2.6%. it just doesn't get it done, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Because, I mean, let's let's peel out inflation. If inflation is starting to run close to the Fed's 2% target, that's, what, 0.6%, uh, you know, real wage growth? That's mm-hmm. not a lot of purchasing power to sustain the economy. So I do think we want to see that number climb higher. I think policymakers will want to see that number climb higher. Right. So that is a very good reason to, you know, let this economy keep <clears throat> running. Julia Coronado, thank you so much. From 10% unemployment down to 3.9% unemployment, uh, that is fine. Just thrilled to have her uh, with us. Dr. Coronado, of course, with uh, years of good work and helping uh, with the program. She is with Macro Policy uh, Perspectives as well. Uh, we have been honored this morning by the attendance of Martin Feldstein of Harvard, Alan Kruger from Princeton, James Glassman with us, Julia Coronado, and other worthies. We continue strong out of the plant of Ned Gramlich in the University of Michigan. We are thrilled to bring you Betsy Stevenson, yes, with the Council of Economic Advisors, her study under Greg Mankiw at Harvard. But far more importantly, she's actually dark in the halls of the Department of Labor. Betsy Stevenson with us uh, from the University of of Michigan. Betsy, what was it like the first day at the Department of Labor? I mean, people, mouthy people on Wall Street talk about it as a dark, evil empire. What's it really like? Um, I think uh, the Department of Labor is a fantastic place. I mean, today we're celebrating one terrific aspect, which is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which gathers all the data that we use. And, you know, we sometimes take that for granted, uh, but, you you know, if you think back to the Depression, when we weren't measuring unemployment, politicians were arguing about how many people wanted jobs, who couldn't find jobs, what unemployment was, and we didn't have any idea. Um, it's terrific that we can count on the Bureau of Labor Statistics to tell us what's happening in the economy. Wall Street certainly relies on it. Within this is 3.9% unemployment in the partition is a, without question, fully employed America that's in the models of your textbooks years ago at Wellesley. Fine. The reality is there's a whole nother America out there. How do we reattach the America of Yellen's slack in the economy to the fully employed America? So I, here's what I think is the difficulty in, in modern times, shall we say, which is that we, in our, our textbooks, we're thinking about 
the unemployment, the, the pool of the people who are unemployed as the only potential people who could take jobs. So if a business wants to hire, the only people they can hire are among the unemployed. But it turns out there's lots of people who don't get counted as unemployed because they're not looking for jobs. And we see lots and lots of people moving from what we call not in the labor force, people not looking for jobs that aren't indicating that they're willing to work straight into jobs as soon as business is higher. And the puzzle for us is to try to figure out how many of the people who aren't working would work if the right job came along and would move into those jobs. That's what, when we talk about the slack in the labor market, we're wondering about those people who aren't mm-hmm. working are they willing to go into the labor market? And what we've seen in recent years is that the relationship between um, who's willing to be hired and the right. employment rate is not the same as it used to be. There's a t- um, we're doing a lot more pulling people straight yeah. out of not in the labor force. Uh, Betsy Stevenson, University of Michigan with us, folks, the Gerald Ford School of Public Policy. Betsy, you've got an arduous public poll 330 course at Michigan, Microeconomics for Public Policy. This is a legendary folks course where people actually have to go micro instead of macro blather. It's what Betsy Stevenson is known for. What's the microeconomics of our lousy wage growth? Um, yeah, that, that's a, a great question. So the microeconomics is getting into why aren't workers demanding more, right? We know there's a lot of jobs out there. And so one of the ways in which workers get the power to negotiate higher wages is to go look for another job and to threaten to leave if they don't get yeah. one, if they, if they don't get yep. the raise. And so it's, it's up to workers to, um, to, to try to put in that, you know, real credible threat, which is willingness to walk away. And the question is, why aren't they willing to do that? Well, lives are more complicated today. People have families. It's not as easy for one person to say, you know, I'm sick of this job. I'm going to look for another job. Maybe that job's got a two-hour commute. Can you fit that in with your family life? Is your spouse willing to move for your job? What about your spouse's job? So I think there's these complications in workers' lives that might make it a little bit difficult for them to do what our models predict, which is to threaten Mm -hmm. to vote with their feet by walking out the door if they don't get a raise. And employers seem to be taking advantage of that. And now, folks, we go nowhere where we would like to go, but we're going to do it with Betsy Stevenson, who is in America, the definitive student of economics in our family. You wrote a paper in 2008 with a guy from Australia called How Should We Think About the Taxpayer Consequences of Divorce? What did Betsy Stevenson think about the alimony treatment in the new tax bill? A select group of our Bloomberg surveillance listeners would like to know. Um. So I'm embarrassed to say that that was something I didn't pay attention to. Well, okay, well, they're going to change uh, the rules on alimony and the tax treatment on alimony. And this goes back to the concept in Washington of divorce, which is always across American history, always been a fraught and interesting consequence. You wrote the definitive paper with Justin Wolfers, how should we think about taxpayer consequences of divorce? Granted, it was a decade ago, but everybody remembers the paper, Betsy. What 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 are the tax consequences of divorce in this nation? Um, well, I think what we were trying to, to point out is that it it isn't as easy for it, it isn't as 
uh, easy for taxpayers to think about what are the consequences for divorce. So one of the things that's happened is making it easier for people to get divorced is one of the things that encouraged women to stay attached to the labor force. If you're less certain about whether you're going to stay in your marriage, then you want to know that you're going to be able to support yourself outside of your marriage. And that we saw that movement um, in the the 70s and the 80s as we changed divorce laws, pushing women into the labor force. So as the threat of divorce grows, labor force participation of women grows, which actually means that there's more women pay more taxes because you don't pay taxes when you're doing home production. When you're at home raising your kids and uh, Mm -hmm. cleaning your house and cooking your meals, we don't tax you on the value you're providing your family. If you get a job and you go to work and you pay somebody else to do all of those tasks, not only do you get have to pay taxes on what you earn, but then the person you're paying to do the, the things you used to do they're also now earning dollars that they're paying taxes on. So that um, that's one way in which we sort of intuitively think, you know, might not intuitively realize that um, that divorce can generate more tax dollars. But of course, there's other consequences of it as well um, related to how kids do and what kind of yeah. burden that might put on taxpayers to provide services. And then there, I mean, I, I think there's this natural issue, which is as families, split apart, how should we think about, you know, what people's true um, means are, right? What's their ability to provide? And then there's, and then how should we think about them sharing income, as you will, through, say, alimony payments or child support payments? Um, How should we think about that from a a tax consequence? And um, as I said, I I was not aware that the recent tax bill, the recent tax bill had so many things in it. Right. Knock little things in um, that, but it doesn't surprise me that you know politicians might want to rethink how we um, well assess that kind of income sharing. Based on what I've got in my mail, people are rethinking it, and it's a sport to say the least. This has been wonderful, Betsy Stevenson. Thank you so much with the Ger- Gerald Ford Policy, a public policy school at the University of uh, Michigan, on this jobs day of three point nine percent unemployment, an extraordinary statistic, and also. Uh, with her expertise on public policy and particularly path-breaking research on the family as well. For the Trump administration's views on the jobs report, we're joined now on Bloomberg Television and on radio by Kevin Hassett, the head, the Council of Economic Advisers chairman. Kevin, always great to get your insight oh, on what's happening yeah, with thanks. the labour market. Let's just begin with that stunning unemployment figure, a three-handle, Kevin. I think a lot of people are trying to wonder whether we're at full employment or not. What's the administration's view? Well, I think that getting down to 3.9 is really astonishing because what it means is that we now have the longest labor expansion, continuous labor expansion on record. And I think that a lot of the reason why that's happened is that we came in and we deregulated at the beginning of last year and then we had this big tax cut. And so a lot of times uh, recoveries start to run out of uh, steam at the end, but we've just you know, put more steam in right at the end. And, and, and one metric of that, uh, by the way, that I think is most interesting is that since the president was elected, 900,000 people 
people have re-entered the labor force and gotten a job. And so we've been able to continue to grow the economy at a very healthy pace because people are coming back. People who were discouraged uh, because they couldn't find a job in President Obama's economy have, have been reconnected to society. And that's really good news. So that, you know, that's really the smoothing through the ups and downs, the headline of the jobs report, I think, is the, the really surprising increase in labor force participation over the last year, year and a half. Kevin, for a lot of economists on the street, they look at the headline numbers and they see an economy, a labor market that is at full employment, a labor market that's really tight, and therefore surely inflation pressure must be coming out the other end. And Kevin, the administration, led by yourself really, really looking for a supply side response. Why are you so mm -hmm. convinced we'll get that supply side response? What do you see in the data well, in Q1 sure. that gives you that yeah, optimism? Sure, we see it in the data already. So, so uh, both in Q4, there was a big spike in capital spending. Uh, and that was in part because people wanted to get uh, some stuff in before year end because of the tax cuts, because they could expense it back to September at a higher rate if they spent it last year. And so we were a little worried that capital spending might level off in the first quarter, but it went up from there. And so the capital spending boom that we said would happen is happening. We're also seeing it in wages. You know, we now have more than 6 million uh, people that have gotten raises that their employers said were because of the tax cuts. And if you look at the employment cost index, then over the last three months, it increased 1%. You know, if, if we had uh, you know, another uh, three quarters like that, that'd be 4% for the year. And that's the highest rate we've seen at least since 2006. Going before 2006, it's hard to make comparisons because they changed the data a little bit. Well, Kevin, some people but, I mean, are pointing so There's out, a lot of good news in the labor market right now. There is. And some people pointed out to me, though, over the last month or so, in the last several months, that there are some signs of some bottlenecks appearing. Labor supply shortages, as well as, let's say, uh, backlogs at factories in terms of orders and whether they can really get things out. Supply side constraints. Do you not see that, Kevin? Yeah, that's that's a normal thing in the cycle that when the un unemployment gets uh, unemployment rate gets low, then what will happen will be it'll be hard to find workers. And at that point, what firms tend to do is invest heavily in capital in order to increase the productivity of the workers they have. And so if you think about it, the tax cut was timed perfectly because right at the moment when firms need to invest in capital to make their own workers more productive because it's getting a little bit harder to find people, uh, then we gave them a tax cut that stimulated capital spending. And, and so I think that that's why, you know, you've seen everybody, uh, the IMF, uh, even the, the CBO, they've jacked their forecasts up for this year to around 3%, which is what we said last fall would yeah. happen after the tax cut, right? And it's happening because the capital spending boom, it's in the data. The wage growth, you know, that's in the data too. And the reason we've been able to continue to grow is there are those 900,000 people that it sort of, you know, that everybody gave up on uh, before President Trump was elected who've been reconnected to society and found a job. So, Kevin, where the private forecasters aren't with you, it's not 2018. They're pretty much in line with you. You guys are looking for something with a three-handle, the median estimate in our blue survey, the high twos. It's 2019. It's 2020. Most of the street, the consensus, see the economy rolling over, not drastically, not dramatically, but certainly the trend's going to go the other way. Why do you think that's not the case? And, and my second point, right. really, on the issue of this being late cycle or not, a lot of people say this isn't the right time to do a fiscal stimulus because of exactly what's about to happen. The economy is set to go right. into a bit of a downturn. Yeah, yeah, really good question. So they, they actually tie together neatly. So the point is that late in the cycle, if you were to pass a big demand stimulus, uh, like the Cash for Clunkers program under President Obama, then that big demand stimulus could heat up the economy and cause inflation to get out of control. But if you have a supply side stimulus, then you increase supply and an increase in supply can even put downward pressure on prices. And so if you want a sustained recovery late in the cycle, what you need is a capital spending boom to push up supply and keep uh, the upward pressure on prices low. 
low, and that's exactly what we're seeing in the data. And there's a real debate as to whether that's going to continue. And Kevin, outside of that debate, there's a debate about the contribution of trade to overall GDP. I think for some economists, by definition, if we get some fiscal stimulus, demand's going to go up, and therefore the trade deficit is naturally going to widen. And you're going to get a negative contribution from trade. And that's something you guys don't want. So can you reconcile the trade effort to get the trade deficit down with the GDP effort to get growth up to 3% and beyond? Oh, sure. You know, and and President Trump and the team are all on the same page on this. And if you look at the economic report of the president, which was written by a guy who some have called a globalist, right, that that it very clearly uh, enunciates the president's agenda, which is to just get reciprocity, to make it so that countries around the world uh, lower their tariffs to the U.S. level. And so that, you know, China, uh, there's talks over there right now, they have a 25 percent tariff on our autos. We have a two and a half percent tariff on their, their autos. If we can get reciprocity in our trade deals, if we can improve them, then over time, you exports should skyrocket and that's really the objective of our trade policy. So Kevin, so I know it's good for, I, and it's good for us and it's good for them too because removing the trade barriers around the world will increase global growth and welfare. I, I know the team is on the way back from Beijing and there's only so much you can say about the results of the negotiations. We've seen here at Bloomberg in a, in a copy of the document that you guys have presented to Beijing of the demands on the US side and they've already been talked about in, in quite a detailed way. What I'm trying to gauge from the administration, we've had great transparency on what you want. I'm trying to understand still the time frame, the time horizon. There's a credible threat with proposed tariffs at the other end. How much longer do we have to see negotiations take place for before that credible threat is actually imposed and becomes policy? You know, I, I have nothing to, to say about timing right now. You know, the team's flying back, and before the team left, uh, they communicated that decisions about what happens next would be uh, made in Washington, not in Beijing. And I think that that's out of, of course, respect for the Constitution. But I'm sure that everybody wants to come back and, and get down in a room uh, with everybody who's back here in Washington and talk it through. And so I'm sure there'll be more news for you guys soon. And Kevin, and I'm are. sure you'll be on screen or someone from the uh, delegation, perhaps Larry Cardlow, will come on the program and talk about the update. And I'd really look forward to that. I guess, I'm always at your disposal. My office is right over there. Well, I'd love that, <laughs> Kevin, as well. I, I guess sure. my final question to you is whether the trade issue is separate from the foreign policy effort, because the president has blended the two and quite clearly pressure on China is generating some foreign policy results. So can we blend the two issues together? Do you take a softer stance on China, on trade, because they're generating results on the foreign policy side for you? Right. Well, you know, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I'm an economist. But there is a foreign policy angle to, to everything. And, and if you look at uh, the reports that the economic report of the president uh, that focused on China, you know, there were lots of uh, episodes of China stealing our intellectual property and, you know, not really respecting the rule of law internationally. And I guess that's an economic issue and a foreign policy issue. And, and that's the kind of thing that's on the table and that I'm sure that our team has talked about with them. Hey, Kevin, really appreciate your time. It's always great to catch Thanks. up with great you and, and for the White Thank House you. to give us their insight after Payrolls Friday. Something very valuable on this program. The chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.